Welcome to the Niche Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, my goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices. Instead, look for the processes and the questions to spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. I'm Will Patch, Enrollment Marketing Leader here at Niche, and my guest today is David Peterson, Assistant Vice Provost for Enrollment Management at the University of Cincinnati. David has 25 years of enrollment management and financial aid experience working at Illinois State University, Sauk Valley Community College, the University of Miami, Methodist College, Indiana University, Purdue University, Fort Wayne, and now here at the University of Cincinnati. David joined the University of Cincinnati in 2017 and is responsible for the areas of student financial aid, enrollment management, technology, and the one-stop shop. He's been active serving NASFA, ACRO, and numerous state and regional associations. Today, we're going to be talking about that intersection of enrollment management and financial aid. Welcome, and thanks for making time to chat today. Thank you, Will. I appreciate it. I'm going to start off here with two questions I ask everyone. What's something that you tried that didn't work, and what did you learn from that? It is a lot easier to identify the things that don't always turn out right, as they tend to stay with you in a way that some of your successes don't. So my earliest example, just thinking back over my career, and it has stayed with me for several decades now, involved my very first director-level position. Uh, Specifically, it, it involved a great idea I had to address what I saw as a retention problem at the institution. I made the decision to uh, bring this discussion up very early in my tenure. So to to kind of give you some perspective, I I got my first director position in my late 20s. The ink on my master's degree, it it still smelled of the mimeograph machine it was produced on. I was full of energy, ideas, and maybe just a little bit of overconfidence. Not sure what contributed more, but this combination produced a kind of nearsighted director who uh, definitely didn't understand institutional awareness. So I'd been there less than three months and immediately identified a correlation between our students who were just above Pell eligibility and those students' persistence to year two. It appeared as though um, those students just above Pell eligibility were 12.5% less likely to persist than our Pell grant students. Mm-hmm. And they were nearly 20% less likely to persist than our economically advantaged students. Now, we were a small institution. It was Sauk Valley Community College. So it was at a community college level school. But we did have some general funds we could use to support incoming needy students. So armed with this information, I was able to sway my vice president and our president that we should increase our need-based funding in an attempt to address the need of some of these students. Based on the research studies I had read at the time, and I, I remember it so well, I, I was convinced that um, increasing aid to these students should see an immediate increase in retention. And so we moved forward. I was able to sell them on the idea. We moved forward with the plan. A year later, I, I, was, I was looking at, at the data, and I, I really couldn't believe what I was seeing. Our retention for those same students had not improved. In fact, the numbers reflected a slight dip. I was scared to death of sharing the numbers. And I remember, I remember vividly walking to my vice president's office, trying to remember all the different job postings I'd seen in the Chronicle the week before, because I was just sure that this was going to be one of my last conversations with her. What I learned right away was that my uh, vice president was about to move from manager to mentor for me. She wasn't shocked or surprised by the results. In fact, she fully expected them. This led to many discussions with her that have served me well over the years. We discussed large issues. At that day, we discussed some large issues like the danger of assumptions and some of the obvious differences between causation and correlation. 
which I should have known, but I may have missed in my enthusiasm. Again, I hadn't thought about the institution itself. I was thinking specifically from a financial aid point of view. It's what I knew. It's what I felt comfortable in. And, and probably the most important thing that she, she kind of drove home for me was the fact that she allowed me to fail. You know, she allowed me to fail in a, a somewhat major way, but it's shaped the way I've become a professional to a greater extent than any of my successes ever could have. I'm really curious too. Has she ever told you why, if she didn't think that it would work, why she let you do it? This is 20 years on now. I'm sure we had much more in-depth conversations. It's a community college, so it's a little bit different mm -hmm. than many institutions, but we needed to put more of our funding where our needs were, and that was with the neediest students. But trying to get certain people in the administration at the time to, to release that, you had to have you know, data to back it up. And I was new, so I, I probably took advantage a little. You know, I, now over the years, I realize that new staff members have the ability to sway opinions a little bit with that um, outsider's perspective that they can they can claim for probably about the first year of their employment. I think she just kind of took advantage of me being enthusiastic, energetic, so self-assured <laughs> to uh, to to use that to to get some funds because those, those that became permanent funding for that for the enrollment management division there. So it got you know used in other ways as the years went on. So in a way, it was still a, it was a success long term. It was a success long term, but you couldn't have convinced me of that that day. I, I'm yeah. very sure. Yeah, I I can believe that. It's scary when you try something and it doesn't work, and you you don't know, especially when you're newer, what that means for longevity there. Yeah, I stayed there for five years. It was a good experience. And the nice thing about a small um, college like that is it gives you an opportunity to wear many hats. So besides financial aid, I ended up doing career services. I ended up actually uh, assistant coach for women's basketball, a lot of different things. It, it, was, yeah. it was a good experience. The more people I talk to, the more I get the impression that community colleges are undervalued as experience. You learn so much so quickly and you get a flavor for multiple offices like that. The interesting thing I would say with any small college, because I worked Methodist College was another small institution that I worked at, mm -hmm. both Sock Valley and Methodist, um, the benefit of it was there weren't silos because we didn't have enough staff to really develop silos. Everyone had to wear multiple hats at, at different points in time. And so you really got to expand your skill set. There was a, a term you used in there that I, I wanted to ask you about, the idea of going from a manager to a mentor. What really differentiates that for you? So for me, a manager is someone who does the day-to-day -day things for you. So they're the ones who give you your evaluation. They're the ones that talk to you, make sure you know what you have to do on a day-to-day -day basis. But a mentor is someone who actually starts taking that extra step and caring about how you're going to develop as a professional, mm -hmm. talking about how you're going to become that next level. And, and even myself at that time, I would tell you I was much more of a manager than a mentor to my staff. I was worried about crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. Mm -hmm. I wasn't thinking about, well, where does a staff member want to be in 10 years? Or maybe they're not necessarily great for financial aid, but they would be wonderful in academic advising. She probably uh, attempted to do some of those mentoring things before that. I'm not sure I really was responsive to it. But now that event kind of drove it home that this one, this, this person's got my back. They're there to see me succeed. I hope that a lot of people have got to have that experience as they're listening. They can think about someone they've had who made that same shift. That's, that's really valuable. I'm curious, what practices do you use to brainstorm and bring new ideas into your work? 
that that might be a little challenging with all the regulations and rules with financial aid. You know, fi- financial aid has a lot more flexibility than than most people realize. Um, it's just not, unfortunately, the flexibility isn't in the ways that most other people think. I, I tend to think of myself as being somewhat innovative, willing to try new ideas. Of course, many of us think that way about ourselves, so I may be overestimating my abilities yet again. But <laughs> for me to find new innovations or ideas, I really like to deliberately put myself in situations that take me as far outside of my comfort zones as possible. Many of your listeners may be familiar with Brene Brown. She talks about the power of vulnerability. Brene, she defines vulnerability as, a, as an emotion that we experience during times of uncertainty or risk or, or emotional exposure. And she talks about how embracing vulnerability by having that courage to show up and, and fully engage and be seen, even when you can't control the outcome of a situation. Vulnerability is, in my opinion, a good thing. For me, it fosters creativity, gets me thinking in an innovative manner, and helps me be more willing to take on change. So again, I, I'm always seeking out opportunities to put myself in uncertain situations. I'm not talking about things that are risky, you know, but I just don't shy away from tough assignments or, or unique experience. A few years ago, I met a presenter from a company called Ideas42, a design and consulting firm that uses insights from behavioral science to address social and in some cases, educational problems. It was a great discussion and it really opened my eyes to a different way to look at issues. That one discussion led me to participate in some of their online training and discussions to try and reimagine how we do some of our day-to-day work. I would, when we would do these trainings, I would generally be the only higher education professional that was involved. Mm-hmm. And most of the participants would be business community leaders, um, even a few legislative aides. And we would discuss ideas about how to how something as simple as adding bolded text or moving to passive acceptance from a more active acceptance in the application design process would immediately create like a positive change in both behavior and activity. And so mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed the material immensely. I, I, it really turned on a lot of ideas for us um, within the financial aid world. We've made some adjustments based on that. Even here at the University of Cincinnati, we used to package plus loans up front and we still do for our incoming freshmen. But after that, if you don't accept a plus loan your freshman year, we won't package you automatically for that for any of the remaining years of attendance. It just didn't make sense for us. It, it created administrative problems on our back end, and it, we haven't seen any kind of major pushback from students. And if anything, it streamlined some of the uh, award letter information. Small changes, but make huge differences. You know, if we only ever look at higher ed, we're not going to get new ideas. Exactly. And for us, I, I try to do the same thing when I, I kind of speak with my team members or any of any of the people that work for me or even people who don't, who I'm just familiar with. Even if you're not in a position to do what I did with Ideas 42, getting out of your workspace, serving on an academic committee or some other university committee. For instance, I'm now on our emergency management advisory committee for the university. We all hear about these things, but you never really understand what goes into these, this, this kind of training and planning that is put through to ensure our universities and college campuses are safe. And it's been an eye opener. 
It's great advice. I hope people take that to heart and start thinking about some things on campus or off they can do to expand that network. We do a retreat. This is something that we've done since I got it. Well, since I arrived at the University of Cincinnati, but unfortunately, COVID kind of took the, the wind from beneath our wings on it this year. It's derailed a few things. <laughs> it, it has. Go figure. I, I don't know why. We take the team off campus for a day. We shut the offices down. We tuck all three offices out and went to the Cincinnati Zoo. We got to meet a few animals. We got to learn desk yoga. We got to hear from community organizations. And, and this was the best part. Uh, we had strategies to end homelessness and LULAC, which is our uh, League of United Latin American Citizens groups there. And speak to us a little bit about some of the challenges they see in their organizations. And we you know, had conversations, frank conversations about how we could support one another. So it, it, it was a great experience. And we try to do that, like I said, on an annual basis. I think many schools do that. But I think the key part of that is getting out of the office, getting out of the comfort zones, interacting with organizations that normally we would never have interacted with. What have you experienced or what have you seen elsewhere uh, at other campuses that have worked really well bridging and, and collaborating between financial aid and enrollment? You know, this is an interesting question, Will, because I've always had the, the opportunity to work in environments where financial aid was a major component of student recruitment and, and enrollment, enrollment management. So I would consider just about every institution I've worked at to be a great collaborative environment itself. Mm -hmm. I, I would say that it, it, it's not because we all agreed with everything each other did, but I think, it, in fact, it had more to do with our, the fact that we had different ideas on how to achieve our shared goals. And what made us great were we were able to share those ideas, both good and bad, in a manner that involved um, respect and acknowledgement of our difference and our differences. And that made us a stronger team. I think establishing and incorporating shared goals into our day-to-day -day activities is key to building collaboration between enrollment offices. Sometimes these shared goals are top-down. Sometimes they are bottom-up. Quite honestly, most often they are a combination of the two, but getting everybody on board is the most important part to try to bring that collaboration together. The key to having great collaboration was having open lines of communication, being honest and transparent in what we're trying to do. And then again, the most important part is those shared goals. For us, as long as we could maintain those shared goals, what are we trying to accomplish? So it's a, it's a shared language, it's shared goals, you know, being able to speak the same lingo, I think, can sometimes create those barriers and, and almost a feeling that you don't even work towards the same goals if you don't know the same lingo. Is that safe to say? Absolutely. The important part, too, is bringing that level of collaboration down to the lowest levels. Entry-level staff need to understand that them rushing through phone calls, let's say, say I'm in the one-stop shop and me rushing to get through as many phone calls as I can, it creates a, a secondary effect of maybe more callbacks or they're going to voice their displeasure on social media or, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to not hear your information in, in the way that it was intended. So there's so many multiple effects bringing in, you know, how important is retention? We all know it's huge, but really putting a dollar amount to what that retention means, the difference between retaining 68% and 70%. What does that really mean to the university's revenue stream? What does that mean for when we have to consider marketing budgets for the next year or what we have to consider for raises for the next year? Simple little things like that. And I don't think sometimes people, 
They have a tendency to get into their little worlds. And this is what I do. I push paper from point A to point B. Sometimes I skip B and go to C, but that's it. And they don't realize that there's so much more. And even that little, that little slice can have a huge impact. That's the challenge. Everyone wants more, everyone wants better, and everyone wants, you know, more revenue from those who come in as well. And that's tough to add all three at the same time. But I think, you know, having open communication about it and being honest and transparent, mm-hmm. we've had hard conversations and, and I haven't taken it down to the lowest staff member, but I'm sure my, my leadership teams have. And I've said, you know, if we have to do a 2.5% cut, what would your recommendations be? You know, I also look at it kind of along those lines of the mentorship issue as well. You know, eventually I'm going to retire. One of these people may have this job. One of these people may move, take this kind of similar job at another institution. They need to have experienced these hard decisions earlier in their careers, at least at some level, maybe not to be ultimately responsible. That's, you know, that's what my role is, but to have that discussion and understand the impacts and know kind of where the discussion is going to go and, and what some of the things that are going to be mentioned are. They need to have that discussion earlier in their careers. There, there's a large number of us that will probably be retiring in the next 10 or so years. And, you know, um, We have a responsibility to ensure that the next level of professionals are ready to assume those levels of leadership. How often do you loop in sort of the middle managers or newer staff so that they get to see everything that goes into this decision that to them, it might be easy to offhandedly say, oh, well, we just need to increase aid or we just need to do X. I'm, I'm just very honest about what some of our challenges at, at our level are and what we're trying to accomplish by making certain changes. I try to share with them the reasoning behind it. I don't necessarily, this isn't about throwing people under the bus, but I, I like to you know, say there was some discussion on this subject. And there are people that felt, you know, in this manner. And there are those of us that felt in this way. You know, when we go forward, this is it. But you can say if someone asks, well, did we ever consider this? Yes, it was discussed. I think that's important. I think they need to know that we're having those that level of discussion. When I was a younger staff member, I felt like decisions were made in a vacuum. I want our teams to know that those decisions don't happen in a vacuum. The fact that they're not there to make their opinions known doesn't mean that the point of view wasn't shared. It seems like at least it's a hard balancing act. Do you loop them in at the very beginning and say, hey, we're considering this new initiative. And then if it doesn't happen three weeks later, they're getting really antsy to hear back. Or do you wait until it's nearly finished and then they feel like they weren't consulted? How, how do you walk that line? I think, you, you know, it comes with a little bit of experience. I will say that. But I don't, you know, just like you're trying to put them in situations that they realize that these are the kind of hard decisions that are being discussed. They need to also know that the timelines that they're being discussed. Perfect example, federal financial aid rules for the 2023-2024 uh, academic year are going to completely change. The FAFSA is going to completely change. Everything's going to completely mm-hmm. change. We know that that's coming at that time. We probably won't receive uh, finalized guidance from the Department of Ed until December of 22, which is when they have their federal student aid conference and two months after the FAFSA has went live. So we've started having conversations about that now. I, I think what we do is you, you put a timeline on it when you talk to them. You're very open about it. So, hey, we're looking at making some adjustments to our need-based aid for like right now, fall of 22. How would we go about doing that? What are, what are we trying to accomplish by that? 
there are certain things that we we have discussions on that are open-ended because by the very nature of them are something that has to be run by our board, for instance, or something that maybe is actually in discussions at the legislative level in the state. Those could impact how we do our day-to-day jobs, but we have no idea when they're going to happen. But when they do happen, it may be, okay, it was decided today, we're putting this into place on Monday morning. And Mm -hmm. so we need to have the conversations ahead of time so they're prepared. So how can the financial aid staff support the recruitment process without adding too much added work to their plate? You know, I, it, that is the challenge. We don't want to add anything to any of our plates at this at these times. We already have our my institution, but we can always improve it. And I think everyone should have closer involvement between both the recruitment and admission side and financial aid during the planning phases. Perfect example, we, we of course, and, and many schools do this, so this is not unique to Cincinnati, but our financial aid team, we take care of awarding scholarships for incoming students, but we work very closely with admissions with do it. And we actually uh, notify students through our slate CRM when a scholarship is decision has been made. But we, of course, have training with the recruiters to say, you know, for our Cincinnati scholarship, which is our number one scholarship program. Mm-hmm. This is what some of our criteria are. This is how decisions are made. This is what we look for. All these kind of conversations. And I think, again, every school has those conversations at some level. But what we try to do is take it a step further before we even get to that conversation. We would have conversations with the assistant directors at both of our you know, financial aid and admission sides uh, of the house to really talk about whether any of the administrative processes or any of the, the way we do business in the selection or the criteria development, if that's going to create any problems for each other's offices and how we're going to, how those are going to impact different types of students. If I'm the assistant director and my recruiters are coming to me saying, well, you know, I see this is going to be a negative impact on students being able to have that conversation with them about, yes, it could potentially have a negative impact there, but you see that it's having a larger impact on, let's say, our underrepresented students or on this in a positive way. And that's part of our shared goals for this year. You know, this is part of our enrollment goals. I think those are the kind of things that helps because then when that that recruiter goes out, they can do a better job of advocating and, and really addressing the concerns that are coming their way. We've started toying with the ideas of getting away from offices and getting to activities. For instance, an orientation group. We have an orientation office. They are, quote unquote, responsible for orientation. But we have working groups within orientation to work on various aspects of that. Same thing with recruitment and retention. We have groups that are put together, and these are teams, small teams. We're talking like four or five people from different offices that ensure that we're providing a comprehensive and complete information and presenting ourselves in a manner that we think is going to strike the right chord with the students and the families that we're trying to work with. So you're essentially putting together these small project teams that can focus in on one task, hammer it out, and then move on to the next. Is that right? Yeah, these aren't standing committees at all. You're absolutely right. They are focused around a project or an activity. You know, again, for us, we're looking a little broader and the idea is to rotate people in and out of it as well. So you might be the financial aid person who's on um, the orientation group today or, you know, this year. And then next year, it may be someone else. And in a sense, it's cross training, but it's professional development. You know, it meets many things. The more well rounded your team members and enrollment management are, 
the more well-rounded the experience your students are going to receive when they're going through the the enrollment funnel, as you, as it were. And so that's what really we're striving to try to build. I like that. I, I'm not familiar with a lot of institutions doing that. You know, everyone has the committees that bog down and, and do things, but I like that idea much better. How's that been working for you? Well, orientation is really the first one we've done it with, and uh, this is kind of year one. So again, I, I, as I mentioned, we're kind of toying with it. Um, yep. <laughs> I'm interested to see how it, it moves forward. Originally, the idea was that we would have these groups come together for short term, but I think at some level, we're going to have to have some continuity within the group just because otherwise you're recreating the wheel from year to year, and that's not necessarily beneficial either. We involve people from outside of enrollment management even. You know, we get faculty involved, we get student affairs involved so that we can see what they're seeing and what their perspectives on it are. And sometimes they add some really interesting commentary that makes us reconsider something or, or a method of what we're trying to accomplish. I wonder almost if it's something you could use a membership organization presidential cycle where, you know, you have one person who chairs the organization, one who did the prior year and one who will the next, and then have the rest of the committee built around that. I like this. My, my wheels are turning. I, I really like this idea. We've thought about it to the point of even kind of building work groups in this way structurally too. Um, one of the things that we've talked about is the idea of basically developing work pods where there are individuals from multiple offices that are working in one section, one pod. So we've taken it to the concept of uh, physical structure and, and how that would look. So I worked at Indiana Purdue University, Fort Wayne, before it became Purdue University, Fort Wayne. And one of the last things we did, I did there was we merged financial aid in the registrar's office. And we merged that to, to basically build the beginnings of the one stop that they have, I think, have since moved away from. But it, it was a very interesting environment. We, we merged organizational lines, reporting lines. There were people that had been financial aid that were now reporting to the registrar. There were people that were registrar that were now reporting to financial aid. It really created a, a high level of synergy. I think one of the challenges with these, these pods or these work groups or however you want to call them, I think one of the challenges is it requires a strong level of leadership. And when and if that level of leadership leaves, if it's not replaced, the work organization can kind of falter. I think that's another reason to promote mentoring early and bringing people into the process as early as you can, right? Absolutely. I think, you know, you never know, just like situations here with COVID and, and, you know, things that we experience on a regular basis, just natural things that happen, people leaving the offices, health issues, to, to start incorporating them earlier, getting them so that they see this as a profession that they want to stay in and that their their viewpoints and their, their ideas are valued. What are some ways that enrollment marketers can better utilize financial aid professionals in their experience? So I think this depends a little bit on institution, but one of the unique aspects of financial aid compared to any other enrollment management area is that we are the only area that regularly says no. Mm, yeah. No, no one else really says no to the same level that financial aid does. I don't feel like no. That may be biased, but I, I, I really do. I see it. We've literally, I've gone to conferences in financial aid where one of the conference sessions is how to say no. It's a challenge. You know, financial aid people are just like people in admissions. They want to help students. They want to. And when they get their admissions, you know, some of our institutions were admitting 
50, 60%. Most of the conversations are still positive conversations. But when it comes to financial aid, in many cases, that's a complete opposite. The, the, the number of students who are actually meeting full need, heck, an institution like ours, it's, it's less than probably 20%. So to sit here and for our staff members in financial aid, they've had to say no since the very first day. And the difference is they may have said no or given disappointing news to families, eight out of the 10 first 10 families they've talked to. And then those two families, they've actually seen a smile um, and seen, you know, enthusiasm about what they were just told. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really uh, something that's unique to financial aid. And so when you look at that from an enrollment marketing standpoint, I think financial aid people tend to be a little more pragmatic. And because of all the T's that have to be crossed and the I's that have to be dotted, we tend to be very detailed. Mm -hmm. You know, I've worked with some enrollment marketers who really, they, they just want to sell the upside. They don't want to have any of the, the tougher conversations. And that's great, but that creates, again, that effect on the back end when we have to have mm -hmm. the conversation with the family and they say, well, your scholarship says that it requires a 3-3 three, three and this, and that was it. Yes, but if you lead, read the fine print, it talks about this as a last dollar award. And since you've already gotten these funds, you're not going to receive this on top of it. And then they feel like they have been misled. So I, I think there's there's some room on both our sides to come to some better agreement. I don't know if you're aware, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, I don't know if they still have this position, but at one time they had a, an assistant director position that was basically called the wordsmith. They looked at all of their publications. They looked at all their forms. They looked at social media posts, everything. And their whole job was to work with marketing to simplify the wording and make it so it would be something that students and families would actually understand. Yet at the same time, meeting the federal and state requirements to pontificate for days. Um, <laughs> so it was a, a, an interesting position. And, and it, they, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember the Chronicle. There was an article about this individual in the Chronicle, very well received it and did a lot of good. They uh, improved their uh, student satisfaction scores because of it. Uh, there was a lot of positives that came out of that position. And I don't think that individual is there anymore, but I think the position still exists. And I think that's something that financial aid and enrollment management really needs to consider. You know, mm -hmm. financial aid people and their offices are usually are understaffed. We are, again, so worried about compliance and things like that, that we forget the positives. We don't think of, you know, shouting from the rooftops that we helped student A achieve their degree, or we uh, helped student B be able to secure housing this year because of some scholarship or grant or whatever we've done with them. And I think we really undersell our strengths and what we do to support students. And I think that's something that it, when it comes to talking about enrollment marketing, it's a win-win for the entire institution, but it's a, a bigger win for financial aid offices. Financial aid offices tr traditionally are, you know, those, those student satisfaction scores generally are not positive for financial yeah. aid. So we need to start tooting our own horns, but I think in many cases we're so buried under the paperwork that we don't think about it. And so making a, a real effort to drive those positives home 
can have huge impacts, um, positive impacts on our institutions and our offices. You know, over and over, we see students and families saying that cost is such a big concern for them and anxiety point for them. And yet so frequently, when I've done secret shopping at least, you don't see that addressed right off the bat. I think it's one of those things people get afraid to talk to. Maybe this is a great opportunity to learn from the financial aid staff. Have the hard conversation up front so that you don't have a harder one later on, right? Absolutely. I think colleges and universities, the reality is we we don't like having these conversations on affordability because it really gets to our value proposition. And it, and it it's again, it's a hard conversation. And we're we're focused on we want to always have more students, we want to have higher quality students. And yet all of us privately, you know, I'm gonna say it here publicly. We all know that there are students that we admit into our institutions that really aren't the right fit. We don't have those hard conversations. And then, you know, then we whine about it a year or two later when the retention rate goes down. And I think that sometimes our fear is that if we do that, we're not going to yield the number of students we need. And I, I tend to think it's the opposite. I think if you have those harder conversations up front, you're right. You're not going to yield some of those students. You're sharing your honesty. You're, you're being up front and you're telling them, you know, this is us. This is what we are. We are not the perfect fit for everyone. But for those that we are good fits for, we are the best fit. And these are the reasons we are. And then talk about the positives. I think you'd see a, a different yield. I don't think you'd see a lower yield per se. I know that's a bold statement that, that some others may not agree with, but I, I think we need to get to that point. Whether it happens quickly or not, I don't know. But I feel like we need to make steps and, and really strive to get there. Hey, innovation always has to start with bold statements, right? This is true. <laughs> Got to be willing to take that, take that risk and, and be vulnerable, right? So. Yep, exactly. So what are some of the ways that financial aid and affordability can be addressed Well, during you know, these events, whether they're virtual uh, or hopefully someday in the future in person, that can really help go beyond just what's available on the website. I think, you know, the biggest thing we have lots of, you know, financial, well, not just financial aid, universities have tons of data and really no one to analyze it in some ways. I know most schools do surveys or um, small group interviews, uh, different, different ways of collecting data from their students to see what the recruitment experience was like what the uh, orientation experience was right, what would they have liked to have more information on, what they would have liked to you know, see less of. We all do that. And I think what we need to really start doing is, is putting that information to work involving financial aid and affordability. So perfect example, there are areas that we recruit at the University of Cincinnati that I know for a fact, most of those students are not going to qualify for need-based aid. I, we want to still make them, you know, or not make them, but we want to still make available to them the idea of completing the FAFSA because, perfect example, CARES Act and things like that, in many cases, required a FAFSA to qualify for those. And you never know when a situation might arise that it would be beneficial to have a FAFSA on file. We need to get more nuanced about the events and the, the presentations we make available to students. It doesn't make sense to have expect a huge turnout from this one community if the most of those people aren't going to qualify for need-based aid. Don't be mm-hmm. shocked that they don't show up for the traditional financial aid one. But what they really might be interested in is a more detailed conversation about scholarships 
yeah. and academic scholarships and how to do that. Likewise, again, we're an urban serving institution. Cincinnati Public Schools is very, you know, very much a low income, uh, underrepresented school system. The kind of conversations we need to have with them need to go beyond just the financial aid process. We need to talk about, especially COVID has, has really made heightened this awareness. We need to have conversations about medical clinics nearby the campus. Mm. We need to have conversations about food pantries that might be nearby. Or for us, we have a huge co-op program. That sounds great. And it is. It's wonderful for students. You know, students can get the opportunity to get real world work experience while they're in school. And I mean, they're making good money doing it. We need to have conversations about that kind of thing. And I'm not saying you have to get into the detail that you and I just did right now, but we need to at least make them aware that it's there. Because I know all of us have had experiences where students will come up and express frustrations or you know, food insecurity or things like this, and they never realized the campus had a food pantry, or they never realized that we offered emergency student loans. We need to make that aware to that demographic, that group of students, and, and we can identify them ahead of time. We have the data to tell us who those are. And so we need to get much more nuanced with the, what kind of events we're planning. And, you know, to go back to the behavioral science, I'm not saying you create a different flyer or informational posting, but maybe in the one that you send to these students, you highlight certain ones or move those to the top and take them out of date order and said, make them buy what we think is going to be more important to those students than ones that aren't. That is the way we need to take some of our events and, and the way we market those events to students or, or potential students. Have you been doing a segmented financial aid events uh, on different topics? You know, we have started going down this road. I would tell you that we aren't probably as far along as I would like to see, but it's it's a direction that I think we will be fully embracing probably in the next two years. I, there's a lot to it. And it's not, you know, I, I know I make it sound a little easy and I think we all know that it's not. But I, I think we can do a better job than what we are doing. And I think we are doing, we are moving towards that. But I think two to three years, I'm going to feel much more confident uh, about it. I think you'll see it reflected in our, our, our yield rates for some of those targeted demographics. Well, David, this has been absolutely fantastic. I feel like I've learned a great deal and I, I really appreciate your approach to all this. If people want to reach out and connect with you, have some follow-up questions, how could they do that? Well, I am, uh, like many of the people that I, I, I notice you've had on here, I am a, a bit of a tweeter. So they can always find me on Twitter. I'm at, at Higher Ed Dave. And uh, I believe you'll have my email on here. But if not, yeah, it's Peter D and then the number eight at uc.edu. And they are more than welcome to reach out to me. I'd love to have conversations. I gain a lot from these kind of conversations, uh, just like, you know, listening to these podcasts and different things do. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate the time. Uh, this is a, a strange time to be doing all this, but yeah, I, I think people will get a tremendous amount out. I have a page of notes myself, so stay safe and, and yeah. have a great one. Thank you, Will. And I appreciate you and your team having me on and uh, have a great rest of your day as well. 